0: I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart.
1: Do you struggle with guilt, with unconfessed issues? Do you, uh, Are you troubled over the failures that you've had in your marriage, <clears throat> or your parenting, or perhaps the shady business dealings that you've had in life? What, what, do, you, what do you do with the guilt that you have? Do you ignore it? Do you, do you try to cover it over? How do you deal with the guilt we all feel? Guilt. How do we deal with it? Uh, do you recognize um, how, how, de- um, how depressive, and how uh, disabling guilt can be? How guilt can it, it can work against us, kind of like the, the heat does to an ice sculpture. You know, the, the heat slowly but surely begins to just, to just deform the image. That's what happens to us. Uh, do, do you realize that, that in 1811, this country established a conscience fund? It, it, it was set up for those people who had defrauded the government. And, and it was a place that they could give back what they had defrauded without questions asked. Up to this point, it's had close to $10 million given. People giving for for things that they cheated, they lied about, they stole, they weren't truthful about. Well, I'm thankful that the scriptures give us something a little more hopeful regarding what we do with our guilt. You know, we're in this series in the book of Psalms, and we're really trying to to learn the language of worship. How, How do we... How do we worship God in all situations in life? Not just the good ones. But but how do we worship God uh, when things are just falling apart on us, when we're in the midst of great trial? We we, we learn that psalm of lament. Or or how do we worship God in the midst of great uncertainty or or fear over what might be? And we learn the psalms of trust. Or how do we handle it when things are really going well? And, of course, we, we saw that psalm of thanksgiving. Well, today we're going to look at a penitential psalm, a penitential psalm, that's Psalm 32. This is a psalm given to us uh, to express words, to give us words to express to God when we are mired in sin, or trouble, or struggle. We've committed sin, we're bearing guilt. It, it, It helps us to approach God in the midst of our sin, not when you've cleaned yourself up but in the midst of your sin. Uh, th- that's what this psalm is. There's seven of them in the book of Psalms. Let me give them to you. It's 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, 143. Let me give them to you again. Seven penitential psalms. There's 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, Uh, 130 and 143. These are psalms that are given to us with which we can approach God. Now now listen, uh, our instructor in this psalm is no less than David, King David. I mean, he couldn't have picked a better instructor. And you know why I say that. I mean, the life of David, I mean, it was a train wreck. He He knew sin at a great level. You know the story, if you want to go back there later this afternoon, it's in Second Samuel, uh, chapters 11 and 12. David was the king of Israel, a great king, and yet he lusted after a woman, committed adultery with her, as she became pregnant. He then draws her husband back, in a way to cover his sin, he draws her husband back from the battle, gets him drunk and sends him home to his wife, hoping that he would then think the child was his. But you know, Uriah, her husband, was a much more righteous man than the king was. And while his men were in the field, he would not go and have the pleasure of a woman. And so he stayed at the palace, like his soldiers were in the field. Well, when that plan failed, David manipulated the situation in the battle, had Uriah sent back to the field, put in a precarious position, and withdrew the men from him. He was an elite soldier, kind of a special forces type. He dies. So, so David is, is now both an adulterer and a murderer. And time passes and nothing happens. It's as if he's gotten away with murder. It's what it seems like. But you know, you, you can't sweep sins away with the broom of time that they will come up. And and God, in mercy, sends Nathan a prophet and confronts David. And by God's grace, David repents and confesses. And that's what Psalm 51 is all about. It's the recording of his confession. It's another penitential psalm. What Psalm 32 is, is Psalm 32 is written after 51. After he's thought about it, he's had time to reflect. What David is doing here is he's, instructing us. He's teaching us. In fact, you notice in the superscription there, it says a mass school of David. A mass school, uh, most theologians think it means instruction or teaching. He is going to teach us. In fact, he did say that in Psalm 51. He says that I will teach transgressors your ways. And so that's what he's doing. David's opening his life up for us, and he's saying, let me instruct you what not to do, but what to do. Let me instruct you in the joy that will be yours when you walk in the forgiveness that God has offered to us. Let me remind you of the happiness that our lives can be filled with over God saying, I forgive you. Augustine was a church father of the 4th century, really shaped much of Western culture. This was his favorite song. He had it written on the wall In his bedroom as he lay dying. You know, there's never a time that you don't want to hear that God has forgiven you, but you really want to hear it when you're about to die. The blessedness of God giving to you, that you're in the clear with God. You have no fear as you draw your last breath. And so he just would read it over and over. If you're here and you're a sinner, I think that's a wide net. (laughs) This is for us. This is good news for us today. This is great news. I want to look at this psalm in three parts. One will be just this declaration that David gives of forgiveness. That through confession, this forgiveness is given. Sinners can be forgiven. And, And then secondly, he's going to talk about the act of confession that brought about the forgiveness. And, and then he's going to talk in verses 6 to 11 about the, the blessings that will come from a life of happiness, a life that confesses. So in the first two verses, there's a declaration that, that confession leads to happiness. And, and then in 3 to 5, there's going to be this act. What did he do? What was the confession, the act of confession? And then the blessings of confession in 6 to 11. So, look with me at 1 and 2, because here David is like a herald and he is declaring to people. He's declaring that sinners can be forgiven. So he says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man or the woman against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, David's simply saying this Happy are those who are forgiven. Sinners can be forgiven. And, and, and then he goes and explains not just your garden variety type of sinner, I mean, really big sinners. He uses three different words to describe this idea of a sinner. Look at them in your text. He says transgressions. Transgressions is kind of this flouting of God's law, like this this arrogance against God. He uses the word sin. Sin is kind of a, a missing of the mark. It's like the arrow that doesn't hit the target. And, and then you see that iniquity. Iniquity is like the... it it could mean like bent or twisted. It's like our character. That moral, that inner moral corruption twisted against God. Uh, He's using these three words, he's piling them together to show us the full dimension of the evil that characterizes our hearts. And even at that level, he's saying there is a path to happiness. There is forgiveness. And, And then he uses three words for forgiveness. So he parallels it. The three words for forgiveness. You see, the first word is transgressions, forgiven. The word forgiven means, I want you to think like uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. The load is lifted off. The debt is carried away. And and then he uses the word uh, to cover, to conceal. God's not hiding hiding it to bring it out later. God's saying, I don't even see it. It doesn't even enter my view. It isn't even there to me. So forgiven are you. And then the last word, count no iniquity. It means it's accounting, a non-reckoning, the bills paid, the, the slate is clean, the debt is resolved. So he's showing us here, happy is the sinner who is forgiven, and forgiveness is full and real and complete. That is for those in whose spirit there is no deceit. There's no deceit. In other words, we're coming clean with God. We're not confessing to God with one arm behind our back, with our fingers crossed. We're kind of hedging a little. We're kind, of, we're kind of just giving 90% of the story in whose spirit is no deceit, that I am fully transparent before God. I've confessed to God what I have done, who I am. Not just what I've done, but who I am, that bent moral nature of mine. This leads to blessedness and happiness. That you'll stand before the Creator of the world, the Maker of all things, and you will be forgiven. Do you have this joy and this happiness that He's speaking about? This blessedness. Have you experienced this? Was it just maybe at your conversion and not going forward? You know, sadly, many people I talk to they they are not happy. Uh, they don't hear this and, and rejoice as I would think we'd rejoice. It's like the prisoner being declared innocent, the gates all thrown open, and he walks free forever. The, the joy that he would have, we don't have that as much. Why? And I was thinking about that. Why don't we have a joy? I, I'm, not, I'm not asking to run up and down the aisles, but, 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 but a, a serious joy. I, I, I mean, uh, not fearing death, not fearing trial. Not being overwhelmed even by the beautiful things in your life because you're more overwhelmed by this forgiveness from the maker of the heavens and the earth. I I thought two reasons that we struggle with this happiness. And number one is we often think too little of sin. We think too little of sin. And, and Some of us, some, have even gotten rid of the category altogether. It's just a relic of the past. It's a hangover. We don't even think about it anymore. I don't think that's many here. I think I think sometimes in here we just get kind of we marinate in the culture a little bit. We begin to think, well, sin as long as it's nobody's hurt and as long as it's consensual, it's probably okay. Or where we look at ourselves and the sins that we commit, and we can always find somebody worse, and so they become the ones who struggle with sin and not us. Here's the irony. This is the the total irony of the scripture. To the degree that you understand the repugnancy of sin is the degree to which you'll enjoy it, the forgiveness of God. In other words, there's a direct direct proportional relationship. If you don't see sin as much, you're not going to see forgiveness as much. One author said it this way. He said, until we fear sin and its consequences more keenly, we will not prize our pardon very highly. Is this a problem for you? How do you assess your own understanding of sin? How do you understand your own need for forgiveness? Uh, so let me give you an example. I, I'm, I don't want to ask you how, sensitive to you how sensitive are you to people sinning against you, most of us are very sensitive to that. But in the last week, how sensitive to you, in other words, how often have you confessed to God your sins? When was the last time you confessed to your spouse or a friend or a work, uh, a workmate? When was the last time you've expressed confession of sin? Or go back two weeks or a month. Has it been once, twice? Has it been zero? I think about it for a minute. If you never, let's say in the last week, you've never really confessed much to God over the nature of your sins, if you really haven't spoken in any confessional way, uh, sinning against your spouse or your children or friends or someone in the church, if you haven't done that, let's say in the last two weeks, does that mean you have not sinned at all? Or does it mean it's not really that huge a deal or they just have to get over it? Or does it mean you just haven't even thought about it? But all those things would seem to imply that we can think little of our sin because if it doesn't if it doesn't sting us in the sense of convict us, if the weight of God doesn't sit against us in our sin, it almost would imply we're illegitimate children so so We don't want to think too little of our sin because we'll think too little of forgiveness. Uh, Some of us, though, I think most of us here would think probably too much of our sin. Uh, We're overwhelmed with our sin. We can say that God will forgive other people, but when it comes to us really believing that he really has forgiven you, uh, that all the debts you have accumulated over all your life, they really are paid for in Christ, then it's just, I can't believe it. I, it's, just, it's, it's simply a product of disbelief. And it can go even further. We might be forced into saying, well, yeah, I, I believe God has forgiven me, but I, I can't forgive myself. And that could be implying that our righteousness is higher than God's, which I know you wouldn't say is true, but we, we would almost live in that. You know, do, do you realize that God has said, blessed is the one who's forgiven. Blessed is the one who no iniquity is counted, in whose spirit is no deceit. When you confess your sins, God says, I forgive you. Do you believe that? Because when we carry around the ghosts of the past and we drag the corpses of our past sins and failures, it's as if we're saying, I don't believe you. It's a call to faith. Do you believe that you've been forgiven? Because if you know that the record has been wiped clean, we'd be happy people. Very happy people. Because we're going to see God one day and there's going to be no purgatory. There's going to be no deliverance of the sins that I committed right before the last time I confessed. They're all, cl- they're all clear. So that's the first thing David's doing. He's declaring to us that through this humble confession, you will receive a blessedness and a happiness because your sins have been forgiven, your transgressions have been concealed, and no iniquity will be counted to you. But that really begs the question then, doesn't it? What then is confession? If confession leads to this blessedness, then what is the act of confession? Uh, What does that mean? Well, look with me at 3 to 5, because David's going to explain. Now, you're going to notice when I read these, listen to the eyes and the mys, because he goes to the first person now. He's speaking about himself. He's testifying about himself. He says, In three and four, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. So David's talking about himself here. And what he's saying is, he's saying this, is that, you know what, I refused. I stonewalled God. I stayed silent. I was unrepentant. When I was a murderer and an adulterer, I tried tried to keep it low. Just ignore it. Time may heal wounds. But time does not bring forgiveness of sins. God doesn't forget the sins. They do not go away. You may forget the sins that you committed 18 years ago. God has not. And and, and David thought that time would heal it. It didn't. It began to wear him down. His bones wasted away. His strength began to evaporate. Is he speaking poetically or literally here? I don't know, but I think, I think all of us have experienced that degree of unconfessed sin, of the guilt that begins to wear down, like a festering wound that won't get better. You know, you can't eat, you're unable to sleep, your stomach's in knots. This is my personal testimony. Irritability, anger, all these things begin to evidence that that there is guilt upon my soul that I have yet to deal with. But you know, even though David was silent, God was not absent. God's always, he is always so kind, even when we're being like the mule. No, God was present. Notice what he says Your hand was heavy upon me. David sees that it was God's hand of heaviness, but heavy in mercy. His hand was heavy in mercy because God was driving David, using guilt to drive him to repentance and to turning. And that's what you see. That's what you see in verse 5 when he says, Then I will acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity, the guilt of my sin. He did not try to cover up his sin. He didn't try to add good stuff to the bad sins that he committed. You know, like the movie, I saw the movie Les Mis, maybe many of you went to the play. Jean Valjean, the star of that, of that uh, Victor Hugo's novel, where he steals the silverware from the priest, and he can't get over the guilt, and he just tries and tries to do more and more and more good, and he just keeps piling up the good, but it doesn't do anything to the bad. we just sang that, not in May. We just sang that very thought that no hands lifted, no prayers made, no recitation made will cover the guilt. And that's what he's saying here. I acknowledged it to you. To acknowledge it is to admit it. It's to own it. It's to say it's mine. That sin, that ugly sin, it's mine. It's all mine. Nobody else's. It's mine. To own it. You know how hard that is? To say I am wrong. You know how hard it is. It, it starts early. It's hard to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. We want to say, I was wrong, but if you had done this, then I wouldn't have been the way I was. Or, I'm, I'm sorry, I was wrong, but if you, you you got to say that you were wrong. That is the way we feel. And we're raising Katie, our firstborn, was a clever child. And uh, I asked her if I could share this. And uh, so we taught our kids, when they had a spar with their sibling or with us, that they were to ask for forgiveness and to, to ask for forgiveness and say, they were sorry. And it was hard. For, and Katie, it was hard for her to say she was sorry. She would say, "I'm sorry." <laughs> she would say, "I'm sorry, ah." She would not say, "I'm sorry." As I asked her yesterday if I could share this, she goes, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, or I think she was thinking this because she goes, I have a daughter who says, I'm sorry, not. (laughs) It's fundamental to who we are. We don't want to say we're sorry. We have trouble admitting it. We struggle with just owning it. We have trouble. But he, he doesn't just admit it. He doesn't conceal it. He opens it up. He doesn't justify it. He doesn't explain it. He doesn't water it down. He doesn't revise it. David, I'm a murderer. I'm an adulterer. He opened it up. He, he made it clear to God. He was fully transparent. He owned it. And even to others. You know, there's a, there, there will be a public. You know, It's just not vertical here. But to not conceal it is also to go to the brethren sinned against. And to say it as it is, not to say it as you wish you could say it. So, so he, he admits it, and then he, he doesn't cover it. And then what does he do? He confesses it. Now listen, when he confesses it, that word, to confess, means to agree. I agree with God. I agree with how he sees my sin. In other words, I can take my sin and I can explain it away very easily. But when I begin to look at sin, the way God looks at sin, that brings a repulsiveness to me. And so when he says that I will confess my sins to the Lord, he goes to God first. It isn't because God's the only one offended. You remember back in Psalm 51, he says, against you only have I sinned. David knows full well he sinned against Bathsheba, he sinned against Uriah, he sinned against his other wives, he sinned against the kingdom, he sinned against against a slew of people. It was a national sin. But first, we deal with God. First, we deal with God. Before we can ever forgive others, we have to be forgiven. We've got to deal with God. And so he does. He says, I'll confess it. I I agree, God. I have made this sin to be palatable, and I'm sorry. It is to you. It is ugly. I want to see it the way you see it. And so David admitted, he accepted, and he confessed, it says God forgave the debt of a sin. God forgave the guilt of a sin. God forgave him. God says you are forgiven. And God's not a man that'll change his mind. So God says you're forgiven. So he then began to walk into freedom. He's happy. He's blessed. Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. Have, are you sitting on sin right now in your own life? What What... What remains on your soul of guilt? What are you afraid might come out about your life that you haven't confessed? Sin is a horrible master, thrives in the dark, loves the secret, wants to stay in the shadows. You know, the writer of Proverbs says, whoever conceals his sins will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Are there things in your life that you need to speak to God about? Are there things in your life that are preventing you from having the blessedness and the happiness that can be yours? What what do you need to speak to God about? You know, When he leads us in confession, I would add, I think it's implicit in the text, but when we are to confess to God, we want to confess in faith. In other words, some of you might be thinking right now, you know, is it that easy? I just have to, Admit, accept, and confess, and then God just moves on from it? Is that all I need to do? That, that's no big deal at all. Remember now, the Old Testament saint, when they confessed their sin, they confessed it with faith that God was going to bring about a way of deliverance. So they didn't think just verbally communicating to God was going to bring up. They had faith that God will provide a means of deliverance. Uh, Case in point, Abraham in Genesis 15. It says Abraham believed in God and it was reckoned to him or counted to him as righteousness. And that doesn't mean that Abraham came to believe in the existence of God. He, he believed in the existence of God. But when it says that he believed in God, he believed that God would provide a seed from his own body that would be a blessing to the nations and bring deliverance to people in exile stuck in sin. He believed that God would provide a Messiah, a son, a deliverer, a king. That's what he believed. And that's what we see written in Isaiah, right? In Isaiah 53, he says that we all like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In other words, the Old Testament saints confessed their sins with faith in God that he would provide a Messiah, a deliverer. All the sacrificial system, all the the priests laying the hands on the animals and the animals sacrificed for our sins, that whole substitutionary picture that was just woven through the history of Israel, that was preparing a people for what? They were looking forward. Who's coming? Who will take away our sins? So it's not a surprise to us when Jesus arrived. You know, the New Testament just is a beautiful blooming of the promises of the old. When, when Jesus comes on the scene and John the Baptist sees him, what's he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's our substitute. All those, all those thousands of animals, there he is. That, that's what they were pointing to right there. That, that, that one on him whom my iniquity has been placed, there he is right there. This Jesus, Jesus has come from God to bear our sin. This is what it means to be a Christian. Not just to confess your sins, but to confess your sins in faith that God has provided Christ to be our sin bearer, our sin taker. So that, so that God is both just, He's punishing our sins, our sins deserve to be punished, but He's also the justifier with those who have faith in Christ, who is a propitiation, a sin bearer for us. This is how we confess. We don't confess and just say, sorry, God, you know, I, I raise my voice to Carol again. No, I, I, I confess Say, God, I have faith that this sin of which I have brought against Carol has been paid for by the blood of Christ. You have sent a deliverer to take my sin and to forgive me. That's why we preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We confess in faith that the gospel is sufficient. This is why we have such a hope that our sins really are paid for. So we confess in faith. So when you look at your life and those things, you know, <clears throat> look at your life in the spheres of your, your marriage or your relationships, your, your family, your church community, your, your work environment, and, and where do you need to confess to God and perhaps others of your sins? And when you confess, you've got the gospel right here. I'm confessing in the faith that Jesus has died for that sin. That brings a blessedness to us. So we confess in faith. I also want you to confess regularly. I want you to confess regularly. What, what I mean by that is all the time. I take the garbage out probably three, four times a week. I'm confessing like I'm taking the garbage out. Why? Because it keeps sinning. You know, First John tells us, the Apostle John, the, the one that Jesus loved, he says, if you say you have no sin, you are deceived. You are deceived, and the truth of God is not in you, but if you confess your sins, he, face, he is faithful and He's just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Interestingly, he uses the word "just" because it would be unjust if He didn't forgive you, because the blood of Christ has been shed. It's a guarantee of your forgiveness. And it's a reminder to you again, of what Jesus has done. So we want to confess regularly regularly. If you don't know what to confess, ask your spouse. If you're not sure, ask the Lord for wisdom. You know, in Psalm 139 he says, search me and try me, see if there is any wicked way in me. Ask a friend. We will help you. I promise you. But then I also want you to confess with responsibility. If you have sinned against God, I will I will assure you that some person has been affected by that. Who are they and what needs to be said? What needs to be made right with them? I, I love the words of Paul. You know, he says in Acts 24, 16, he says, So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. And so he, he's constantly looking. Not, not, not an overwhelming sense of navel gazing, but just looking at my life. With whom have I a fracture, or with whom do I have an an unresolved conflict? Let me go resolve it, or at least attempt to resolve it, or at least be at peace with all men, so that I can be in hopes of resolving it. I realize some of the difficulties, and some of the knots in your life will take a long time to untie. Perhaps you've had relationships that have been on the outs for a long time. I would encourage you just to begin by praying for those, regularly praying for those. And putting yourself in a position where forgiveness and restitution and reconciliation can happen. And that you do this honestly. You don't do it to fix the other person. You're, you're, You're just confessing your own sin. You're not confessing their sins for them. Just yourself. So that's what he's saying here. This act of confession is profound. It leads to a freedom for us. Listen, I shared this with you way back in the day. When Carol and I were back in Maryland, we had a prison ministry. She would go in once a a month, but I used to go in every Thursday. and I would teach a Bible study in a a mental section of one of the prisons. And there was a gentleman there, a very big man, uh, who was guilty of double murder, killed his wife and her lover, and uh, he came to faith in Christ through the ministry of the deceased wife's parents. Wrap your mind around that one. They'd go in, minister the gospel. He came to faith, and he stood up and said these words. He said, I'm a freer man in jail than I ever was out of jail. I'm a freer man in jail because I know that I've been forgiven by God. I know that my debts have been wiped clean by Jesus Christ, and I'm a freer man. I feel freer now than I've ever felt outside of jail. That's the freedom that forgiveness brings. The act of confession is significant to you. I encourage you, carve time out today. Ask, just even if you don't know where to start, just take a block of time, go home today, and just say, God, I need, I want the happiness. I want the blessedness. Help me on this journey. And begin to ask God for that. Because what comes is what you find in 6 to eleven the blessings of this forgiveness. Look at what David does. You can, just, you can almost see him jumping up and down with excitement to tell the people what he's learned. Look in 6, he says, He says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Even in the rush of great waters, they will not reach him. You're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. What David's doing here is David's saying, listen, I've just told you the train wreck of my life. Now I'm encouraging you. Listen, offer prayers to him while he may be found. In other words, you as well ought to offer confession. You ought to confess to God. This is what I'm telling you to do. It's what David was telling the congregation to do. David was no longer seeing God fearful as a judge, but now he sees him approachable as a kind, a kind God that has provided a way of deliverance for his children to return to him. Like the prodigal, happy. Before the prodigal could get out of his mouth, I'm sorry, uh, robes were being thrown on him, rings were given to him, calves were being prepared for a party. That's the nature of God. I don't know what kind of God you've heard about before. That's the nature of the God of the Old Testament, by the way, and not just the New. That you can offer your prayers, but do it at a time when he may be found. Why does he say that? I think there's a sense of urgency. I think when you feel the conviction of God's spirit, you do it. You may not feel the same conviction two days from now. You may not have two days from now. We don't presume upon God that because the average age of the American male is 77 or whatever it is, that you have 77. I don't know what you have. I don't know what I have. But I don't want to presume upon God. But what he's saying here is offer prayers because God wants restored fellowship. He wants to be with us again. Notice the protection that we have. He is a hiding place. Those rush of waters, those waters of God's judgment for our sin, they won't get you. They won't reach you. They won't re- You're out of reach. You're in him now. So he is your hiding place. But not just protection. How about instruction? Look at 8 and 9. In 8 and 9, he says, I'll instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I'll counsel you with my eye upon you. Those are all covenantal terms, covenantal language. God is restored to you. He's your father. He wants to instruct you. He wants to give you wisdom. He wants to lead you in this life. And that's why he says, don't be foolish like the mule. Don't be like an animal that has no moral reasoning, that has no sense at all. It needs stuff in its mouth to control it and get it to go where it needs to go. No, don't be like that. Be quick to respond. But not just protection and instruction. Look at the affection he gives us in, in 10 and 11. He kind of sets it up like wisdom literature. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, right? But, but what about the one who trusts? What's he say? He says, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Again, you get that idea of faith. This is what Paul was referencing in Romans 4. This idea of faith bringing about a righteousness. And here, surrounding in a steadfast love. He says, be glad and rejoice, O righteous. Do you realize that we're simultaneously sinners and saints? He's speaking to sinners and he's calling them righteous. We are living in the tension. that simultaneous sinners and saints. That's why we have tension. That's why we confess. We are, be- we, we are becoming what we are. As we confess, we're becoming what we are, which is perfect in Christ. And so he's saying rejoice. Don't be stubborn. Don't, don't lock yourself down. Well, they're going to they're need to apologize first. No, we confess before God and before others. So when you look at this psalm, you have, you have David make this declaration. Happy is the one who's forgiven. Are you happy? If you're forgiven, if you're here as a Christian, you're forgiven. Aren't you happy? Aren't, don't you feel blessed to be in a right relationship with God? But, 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 you know, we are, but we still sin. So we walk out this act of confession in three and four. Don't be silent. Don't, don't be unrepentant. Just daily come before God. And then the blessings God promises us, protection, instruction, and affection. So let me ask you, do you cherish the forgiveness he's given you. I, forgiveness is not getting off the hook. That's not it. Forgiveness. Forgiveness leads us to cherish the fact that we're forgiven. We can cherish it. And, and cherishing the fact that we're forgiven is really cherishing the forgiver. We're cherishing the forgiver. Our affections are to be stimulated. Think about in Psalm 130, verse 4. He says, If you, O Lord... Should mark iniquities, who could stand? Who in this room could stand before God? If he marked all our our iniquities, could we stand before him righteous? He says, He says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? He goes, but with you there's forgiveness, and so you are feared. You're feared, you're revered, you're loved, you're thanked. We're overwhelmed at the kindness of God. Let affections in your soul be stirred. And and then secondly, don't just cherish forgiveness, but enjoy the relationship God has with you. Too many of us are dragging the corpses behind us. You know, Peter says in Acts chapter 3, he says, repent and let times of refreshment come. Enjoy the forgiveness that God has given to you. Many Christians still drag behind their old life as if somehow God just still has it. It's like the old John Kennedy, yeah, I'll bury the hatchet, but I'm going to mark where I buried it. God doesn't do it that way. He has and wants to be in a relationship with us through Christ. He loves you. He loves me. We're simultaneously sinners and saints, but he loves us. Walk in that relationship. Enjoy that. He wants to to protect you. He wants to instruct you. He wants to pour his affections His love surrounds you. He wants to remake us. You know, back in the Middle Ages, the the monks uh, would, of course, write scriptures and write truths of God down on parchments or vellums. And vellums and parchments were the were the kind of the material that they would write on. They're very expensive, and so oftentimes they would take old Roman manuscripts. And they would, uh, which were often filled with blasphemous and filthy language, and would they would take their pen knives and they would get underneath and they would remove the ink and the letters, and then they would clean the parchments, parchments, and then they would write over it scripture, and the truths of God, and they would reclaim those documents, they would reclaim those parchments and make them as they were new. That's what He's done with us. He's lifted up and carried away our sin. He's washed us clean. And he's now written himself upon us so that we could enjoy him forever. And in that is the greatest treasure that God is and his forgiveness is the greatest, the most precious gift in all of the universe that he would be that kind to us. Let's take a moment and just just enjoy God for a moment. Thank him be overwhelmed by his kindness. Because we have trouble forgiving people, please don't project that upon God. As Ray prayed, he's, he's far different from us in that way. And then I'll pray for us.